Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As many of you know, we are speaking this year about the Torah cycle readings. Each week in the Jewish community, the community reads a different section of the Torah. This week in Jewish congregations throughout the world, the Torah portion that is being read is called Toldot. It begins in Genesis 25:19 and continues through Genesis 8, 28, verse 9. Toldot is the only portion in the Torah that puts the patriarch Isaac at the center of the action. Yet it jumps right into the next generation. The Torah portion begins with the birth of Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau. Like Sarah before her, Rebekah is deemed by the text to be barren, but then miraculously gives birth later in life. It's a difficult pregnancy. She inquires of the Eternal, why is it so difficult? Why has this happened? And finds out that she's carrying twins. The first child, according to the text, emerges all red and hairy and is named Esau. The second boy comes out holding onto his brother's heel. He is named Jacob from the Hebrew root, meaning heel. When they grow up, Esau becomes a hunter. Again, from the text, a man of the field. And Jacob is described as Ishtam, a mild man who refer- preferred to remain back in the camp. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. This context of parental favoritism and sibling rivalry serves as the backdrop for the complex relations and tragic events that follow. Jacob takes advantage of a weakened Esau and gets him to sell his birthright for a bowl of lentil. Later, famine forces the family to leave Canaan and travel to Gerar. Isaac and Rebekah repeat, a third time, second with Abimelech, the wife-sister confusion of Abraham and Sarah, and then they must deal with some issues of water rights left over from Isaac's father, Abraham. Now wealthy, they end up settling in Beersheba, where God appears to Isaac and Abimelech, the king of Gerar, and establishes a treaty with him. This section of the Torah portion ends with the news that Esau, at the age of 40, married two Hittite women. They are described in the text as being a source of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. The story continues sometime later when Isaac is old and blind. Fearing the end of his days is near, he called his eldest son Esau to receive his final blessing. But first, as the text tells us, he asks Esau to hunt and prepare for him some of his favorite food. 
Rebecca overhears this request, and while Esau is out in the field, she prepares the food, dresses Jacob like his brother, and sends him to receive the special blessing in Esau's place. Esau comes back later, and it is then that he and his father Isaac realize that they have been tricked. Esau, Isaac offers Esau a secondary blessing, but it is not enough. Having been tricked out of both his birthright and his blessing, Esau declares his hatred for Jacob and his intention to kill him. Rebekah hears of the plot and arranges for Jacob to flee to Haran, the home of her brother Lavan. Wow, what a story. There's so much there to unpack. But let's begin with um, one of the most interesting verses, and that is Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. The text reads, But the children struggled in her womb, and she said, If this is so, why do I exist? She went on to inquire of the eternal. Now, to be honest, the simple meaning of the text is not so clear. Isaac pleads with God to allow Rebekah to conceive God responds positively, and she does become pregnant. Unfortunately, it proves to be a difficult pregnancy, and that turns out to be twins struggling in her room. Despondent, Rebecca cries out in anguish. However, the words of her explanation, exclamation as recorded, are ambiguous. She then goes herself to seek an explanation from God. Now, if you ask me, I don't think there's a woman in the world who has been pregnant, especially with twins, who cannot relate to Rebecca's discomfort and anguish. For her to cry out in an incomprehensible manner, that too is understandable. Bearing children is tough work. However, the Torah is not so comfortable with passages that seem to not make sense. According to Jewish tradition, nothing in Torah is superfluous or redundant. Therefore, we need to try and find meaning in Rebekah's words. In Cain, Lamaze Anochi is usually translated as something like, If so, why do I exist? As I suggested earlier, Genesis 25 verse 22. But one of the great biblical scholars, Nahum Sarna, notes in his commentary to Genesis, the Hebrew phrase is actually an incomplete sentence, literally meaning something like, if so, why then am, do I? The phrase is dramatic and powerful in its incompleteness. One can almost imagine a twinge of severe pain doubling Rebecca over in mid-explanation, as if to emphasize her distress. But we need to remember that Rebecca's pregnancy is a result of a divine act. Of course, not the first one in Torah. Sarah's pregnancy late in life is also the result of divine intervention. 
This repeats the motif of a barren wife of a patriarch. Rebecca remains childless 20 years after her marriage to Isaac. But unlike his father Abraham, who remained silent about his wife's barrenness, perhaps due to the fact that he had a son through his handmaiden Hagar, Ishmael, it was Isaac himself who acts this time, praying to God to intervene. Isaac's act of faith is rewarded with fertility in the text. But despite the fact that this pregnancy is a result of God's response, it is not easy for Rebecca. Rebecca's cry then becomes a statement of faith in and of itself. But what do these words mean? Could she possibly be questioning the miraculous gift that God has given her? The medieval French scholar Rashi tries to expand Rebecca's words to try and explain their meaning. He wants to explain to us that the phrase means, if the pain of pregnancy is so great, why is it that I longed and prayed to be pregnant? It's a stretch, I know. And if we read the text again, if so, why do I exist? We feel the stretch of Rashi's words completely. In this reading by Rashi, she seems to blame not God, but her own naivete for getting her into this uncomfortable situation. It is a be careful of what you ask for, but you just might get it type of situation. Ibn Ezra, a different medieval commentator, not from France, gives a definite explanation. He suggests, following an ancient story, that Rebecca went around to all the women in the community to ask if they had experienced such pain in pregnancy. They all answered no. Realizing that her pregnancy is different, Rebecca cries out, seeking to know why her experience is unusual. This may be supported as an as a, an acceptable interpretation by the following inquiry she makes of God. She simply sought an explanation of what was going on in her body. She came to realize that only God, the one who blessed her with this miraculous pregnancy, could provide the answer. Two different approaches to understanding what Sarna calls an incomplete statement and which seems to be a questionable question asked by Rebecca of God. Moses ben Nachman, Ramban, a contemporary of Rambam, describes Rebecca's anguish as reflecting a more existential anxiety. He translates Rebecca's words as a challenge to her very existence in the world. If it be so, why do I live, he translates it as. And like Moses, who exhorts God to let him die, rather than put up with the further complaints of the children of Israel, as expressed in Numbers 11.15, and Job, whose unending despair compels him to exclaim, I should have been as though I had not have been, Rebecca reaches the point where she simply can no longer cope. She questions the very purpose of her existence. 
And in doing so, the text appears to have her question God's plan for her as well. She recognizes in this interpretation that her current situation is a result of divine providence. What she doesn't understand is why. And so she goes straight to the source. She inquires of God. We would call this a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith is always a challenge for the person whose faith has been rocked. For our biblical ancestors, expressing doubt in God could often result in dire consequences, leading them to question the very purpose of their being. In a world where the secular and spiritual were inseparable, physical death seemed like a viable alternative to spiritual angst. Today, it might be easier to say it's not the death of the body we fear when we struggle with faith, but the threat of spiritual death that is very, very real. And it is here that we can follow the model of Rebecca, who seeks solace by turning to God. The text, the Hebrew text, uses the word lidrosh, to inquire. But often that word is translated as to challenge or to struggle with God to discover her fate. Rather than turning away from God when she is pained by her pregnancy, Rebecca turns to God, but to challenge God, to find meaning out of her anguish. Rebecca does not turn away asking, why is God doing to this to me? But rather she turns to God asking, what is the meaning of this experience? Though her words in Hebrew may be jumbled, her actions speak louder. It is perhaps a wonderful example of an authentic Jewish act to struggle with God. Rebecca seems to be the individual in our text who shows us the way to deal with an issue of faith. She was the second generation of God's covenant with the Jewish people, the one that began with her in-laws, Abraham and Sarah. Unlike Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca and her husband Isaac were not the groundbreakers who forged the covenant, but the next generation inheritors of it. Rebecca was also second in that Isaac, the blood son of Abraham and Sarah, was the direct inheritor of the covenant. She, in contrast, came to the family and covenant through marriage. And of course, she was second insofar as she was a woman in the ancient world where blessings and covenants were passed down from father to son. Wives and mothers were essential to this process, but, as we know from the text, never on a par with the man. But despite being second in all these ways, Rebecca, known in the Hebrew text as Rivka, a woman of many actions and few words, displays extraordinary strength of body and character, and manages to break the mold and take an active role in shaping her own destiny, and as you may remember, that of her offspring. 
So according to the biblical narrative, as discussed in the previous week's parasha, it's Rebecca's generosity and strength of character that brings her into the covenantal family. After the death of Sarah, Abraham determines that it's time has come to find a wife for his son Isaac. Because he wants Isaac to marry someone from an extended family, he sends his servant, who we identify through the commentators as Eliezer, back to his birthplace to find a suitable bride. Some of you may remember this story. During his journey, Eliezer devises with a test to ensure that he chooses an appropriate bride for Isaac. When he asks a woman for water, the right woman will not only give him a drink, but also water his ten camels. Luckily, Eliezer doesn't have to search high and low. According to the text, he arrives at Aram Naharim, his first stop, and Rebecca is the first woman he meets, and she immediately passes the test. This proves her to be not only generous, but exceptionally strong. How do we know this? Well, the test requires her to uh, provide water for the 10 camels, and one thirsty camel can drink 53 gallons of water in mere minutes. So, though the Torah doesn't tell us this, one can extrapolate that that's a lot of water to carry. After they meet at the well, Rebecca takes Eliezer to meet her family, and shortly thereafter, agrees to return to Canaan to marry Isaac. Strikingly, Rebecca's decision to undertake the journey to Canaan echoes the original journey made by Abraham. Abraham travels from Haran to Canaan after having been commanded by God, Lech Lecha, go forth. Rebecca travels from Aram Naharim, Abraham's birth, to the same destination. When her family asks her if she agrees to go, she responds, Echa, I will go, using Hebrew language that echoes Abraham's. Yet, while Abraham received the commandment directly from God, Rebekah chooses to go of her own volition. Some interpreters have even argued actively chose to marry Isaac rather than fall into a role that was assigned to her. The Bible tells us that Rebecca was very beautiful, a virgin whom no man had known. Most traditional commentators understand this to mean that Rebecca was not only unmarried, but also extremely sheltered. The phrase, whom no man had known, though usually translated as indicating her virginity, indicates that she kept to her house and did not know any man outside of her family. But a more modern understanding suggests the phrase differently. Whom no man had known refers specifically to the servant Eliezer, who did not know that the moment Rebecca saw him, she understand, understood that he was from Abraham's family and that he had come to find Isaac a wife. Immediately comprehending the situation, Rebecca began making her way towards the servant. What the servant did not know was that Rebecca had consciously agreed to and even orchestrated the betrothal before he said a word about it. 
Rebecca is also the first woman in the Hebrew Bible and the only one of the matriarchs to receive a blessing, one that echoes the blessings and promises given to Abraham, which eventually became the birthright passed down from one generation to the next. So while Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and all the children of Jacob receive blessings from their older generation. It is only Rebecca who the text tells us, the Hebrew text tells us, receives a blessing. Her family blesses her with the following English translation. May you grow into thousands of myriads, May your offspring seize the gates of their foes. This too reminds us of the blessings that will come to each of the sons of Jacob as well as to Isaac. Receiving this blessing marks her as someone who has a central role within the covenantal framework. Perhaps not coincidentally, she is later instrumental in ensuring that God's covenantal blessing is passed down to the next generation through her favorite son, and who the text indicates, though the secondborn is the correct inheritor of the covenantal blessing. Rebecca's strength of body and spirit carries over into her new married life with Isaac. She is a woman of action, not of words. And this feature of her personality becomes increasingly apparent as time goes on. When she and Isaac struggle with infertility, which I've already suggested leads to a spiritual crisis for her, Isaac prays to God. But once Rebecca becomes pregnant and the pregnancy proves to be unusually difficult, the text notes that Rebecca goes out and asks God, Unlike Isaac, who passively prays, she leaves her home and seeks out a meeting with God. Additionally, it is a point that is often glossed over, but Rebecca survives a difficult pregnancy carrying twins before the arrival of modern medicine. The physical strength that she demonstrates ensures the birth of two nations, Israel and Edom. And the Edomites, according to rabbinic tradition, are the predecessors of Rome. Not only does she bring both boys into the world successfully, but Rebecca is instrumental in sealing their respective futures, ensuring that Jacob, her favorite child, receives the birthright blessing that had previously been passed down from Abraham to Isaac as the older of the twins and his father's favorite. Esau is the son who is expected to receive the blessing. But at the moment when the blessing is passed down, Rebecca ensures that her favorite, Jacob, receives the birthright blessing. Rebecca is a doer, not a talker. Indeed, while the text is explicit in saying that Isaac loved Rebecca, they have very few conversations and clearly never thoroughly discuss parenting. 
her instinct to spring into action and have Jacob trick Isaac into giving him the blessing instead of Esau, rather than discussing the issue with Isaac, demonstrates the less savory aspects of her character. However, while Rebecca may be a flawed figure, she does prove herself to be capable of learning. One of the very few conversations that Isaac and Rebecca have takes place after the family crisis of Jacob receiving the birthright blessing instead of Esau. The conversation is not about what recently took place. Rebecca, at that moment, expresses her disapproval of Esau's wives, his Hittite wives. But it does indicate that after seeing the consequences of pure action, she is attempting to open lines of communication with her husband. Rebecca may not be the first matriarch, but being second does not her stop her from being remarkable in her own right. She is the first person to make the active conscious choice to join the Jewish people, and her physical and emotional strength help to ensure the Jewish people's future. We can say so much more about Rebecca. She is unbelievably important. Evaluating Rebecca's role in the biblical story of pre-Israelite ancestral beginnings has evoked varying perspectives. Two millennia of Jewish and Christian biblical interpretation have focused largely on male ancestors, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Furthermore, virtually all scholarly studies in biblical textbooks until very recently designated the pre-Mosaic era as the patriarchal period, thereby providing an inherent male bias to any consideration of the family stories of Genesis. This bias rightly reflects the biblical concern with patrilineage, patrilineage, tracing families through the male line. Yet it obscures the fact that these family stories include strong and powerful female characters. Rebecca is far more dynamic and proactive than Isaac, for whom no independent episode is even reported in the text. The very fact that the Hebrew verb to go is used of Rebecca seven times in the courtship narrative of chapter 24 highlights her active character. We could go on. Because of the centrality of Rebecca, the ancestral sequence might more accurately be called Abraham, Rebecca, and Jacob. Though that is not the way it is, it is true that the power of this second matriarch ensures that the covenant which has begun its transmission through the male will be ensured through the actions of a woman. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. If you wish to listen to this morning's episode on podcast, you can find it on iTunes or on the CHRI website. 
That address is chri.ca. If you wish to send a question to myself or about any previous show, you can send an email to jff at chri.ca. Shalom and goodbye. Behold, for me.